0: Good morning, church. It's great to see you here today. Blessed to be together, sing to our good God, pray together, study God's good word together. We Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of 1 John. If you're new to Holy Scripture, you'll find 1 John at the very back of your Bible, after 2 Peter, just before Jude and Revelation. Uh, We like to preach from the ESV translation here at Disciples. One of the Good, understandable word-for-word translations in English. We are thankful for it. Um, in the back of the room is some Bibles for your using if you if you need one. And uh, just thankful to to get to be here today with you to seek the Lord together. Been praying for you. Excited about what God has in store for us this morning as we submit ourselves to His Holy Word. Uh, I get to preach part two of our study of First John chapter two, twelve through fourteen did the first part of our focus on this passage two weeks ago. As we return to this important part of John's letter, he emphasizes that he wants certainty for the church now that they are in Christ. Despite all the ways the world's coming at them, the the false teachings, the the persecution, he wants them to know certainty. The title of today's sermon, You Know, Part 2. 1 John 2, 12-14. Look with me at our passage in its entirety. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John mentions three groups here, as I mentioned uh, in our last time together, uh, little children, fathers, and young men. I want to remind you. Uh, My point from our last time together that John is not attempting to single out these three groups and leave the rest of the church aside. We know this because what he's speaking about belongs to all Christians, not uh, Christians with distinction, which sometimes Scripture does speak to Christians with distinction, depending on how God created them, their role in the church or the family or, or elsewhere. What John's doing here is using family references or season of life references to speak to the entire church who would circulate this letter. It's my conviction that the distinction of the, uh, that we see here in these three uh, descriptions has little to no priority of which we focus, but instead the focus is on the endorsements that are for the body of Christ. John's priorities. He wants them to be emboldened in their certainty. This is something we can all grow in, right? More certainty. This is why I love the simplicity of this part of the letter. I've always had a fond um, love for this part of, of 1 John. And I pray it's a real blessing to you today as we study it in the second part of the application. Let me also remind you that John is showing great affection for his hearers, for his blood-bought family. We saw this in verse 1 of this chapter. He references his audience as little children. And again, I want you to hear that he's not trying to demean or belittle. He's sharing his, his affection for them and the uniqueness of his position in the church. As an elder, a pastor, uh, the authoritative position God's given him over them. John's aim is to convey his deep love, his affection for those in the family of God. Church, we are adopted and brought near to be God's forever family. How sweet is that? Our unity in Christ our, and God's love at work in and through us should propel us to truly and deeply love each other in all the ways that God calls us and equips us to. John wants his beloved in Christ to, to be certain, to to not be undone in the uncertain times that they live in. This is a good thing for a shepherd to do, and I pray it's much of what you receive and walk out of here today with as a result of our time in God's Word together. Like Paul, John doesn't want the believers to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's the words of Paul, Ephesians 4, 14. And this is what God wants for us as well. As we study it, as, as He's and persevered, His word for us to have today, that we too would be grounded in certainty in who we are in Christ. Listen to, to John's press and, and, and the, the drive that we see in this passage. Your sins are forgiven. You know you have you know, you know, you are, you have. You, kn- you are, you know. that This is affirmation language. Reminders of who we are in Christ. A plea for certainty. He's saying, don't forget. Don't lose sight. Don't doubt. Don't question. You know, you have, you are. Be certain in Christ, in this uncertain world. Disciples, family, I want this for you too. I've been praying a lot for us, and I know that there's a lot of things in society right now that feel uncertain. Pressures and things feel a little out of control, like they're slipping away. Many questions about what is coming, what are things going to be like? God's love for us, hear this, is not shown to us in fixing all the uncertainty of our circumstances, but in solidifying us in Christ with great certainty of all that is most important amidst the madness that is Himself. As Christians, we must not reject the work of God in our lives by longing for some more temporary fixes and grounding. No, we must lean in and embrace who He is and how He is at work in us and the world, that we would walk by faith and not by sight. It's easy for us in our flesh to become fixed on the things of the flesh. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? What is coming? What is leaving? Let me say it again. God's love for us is shown to us, not by fixing all the uncertainty of our circumstances, but in solidifying us in Christ with great certainty in all that is most important among the chaos. That is himself. As we pick up today in verse 13 and 14, we see three more great truths that we must be certain in. I pray they're a real blessing to you. Look with me at the first one that we see in both verses. First, John chapter 2, verse 13, he says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he says it again in verse 14. You have overcome the evil one. Before we talk about overcoming the evil one, let's take a moment and talk about who is the evil one and why we need to take him seriously. I only want to spend a little time here today because John is going to talk about the evil one uh, a number of times to come in this very letter. Um, So we will dive deeper into the work of the devil and how he's overcome by christ but but first who is the evil one and it is satan it is the devil who is satan well question 21 in our word of truth catechism gives us a nice clean clear answer i want to focus on the first part of that satan opposes god as the chief of all fallen angels by deceiving tempting and lying the hebrew word for satan basically means adversary 1 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 18 refer to him as a lying spirit. In the New Testament, the term Satan or devil means evil one, as we see it in our passage today. Satan was created at the same time as the other angels. And because God said at creation that it was good, we understand that Satan had not fallen yet. Originally created as a chief angel, on the level of Michael, the archangel, as we see in Jude 9, he was the first of the angels to rebel and promptly thrown out of heaven with myriads of fallen angels who followed his sinful lead. Satan now rebelliously leads a band of evil angels, as we see in Scripture. He is the angel of darkness, although he disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, we are guilty of often portraying him in these really gross and scary ways, but we have to remember that he is the master of deception. And so he cloaks himself in something that's very other than who he is. Satan is an angel and nothing more. He is a lying, evil spirit, Scripture says. That said, we should not dismiss him as irrelevant, for he is real and he is at work in the world. The seriousness of Satan is seen in that he is spoken of more in Scripture than all the other evil angels combined. Of the 29 references to him in the Gospels, Jesus spoke of him 25 of those times. Scripture says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians chapter 2 which includes all unregenerate humanity and the fallen angels, whom he rules. Satan is the little g-god of this world. Second Corinthians 4.4 4. The whole world order that rejects the Creator and substitutes the creature is who follows him. Satan's power is greater than humans who are conceived of man. Scripture tells us that Satan is powerful in the heavens and on the earth. Scripture tells us that he rules the world's sinful system. That he's constantly accusing believers before God. Paul speaks clearly about we who are Christians and what it was before salvation to be enslaved and spiritually demised under his rule. Ephesians chapter 2, 1-3 You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." We need to take Satan seriously. But we never need to lose sight of the fact that Jesus has overcome Satan on our behalf, church. Paul also spoke of the glorious grace of God that saves us to be set free from Satan's rule and the condemnation of sin. Ephesians 2, the next few verses, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Men. This is the good news that is better than all other good news. What is it? That there is a champion who has come and crushed Satan, the adversary, and defeated spiritual death for many as he unshackles enslaved sinners from the reign of satan this champion is jesus he is power he is truth he is the truth that sets his people free he says so in john eight thirty six. if the son sets you free you will be free indeed this is the gospel of jesus The perfect and completed work of Jesus. It is the hope we only have in Jesus. The freedom and life we only find in Jesus. God is adopting sons and daughters. He's rescuing them this very day around the world. Christian, are you aware of that? Are you praying for that? He could be rescuing you right here today. Paul says it so well in Colossians 1, 13-14. For He, God the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're here today and you still rule your own life, I'm not interested in how much church you've done how much Bible you've read. I'm, I'm talking about who, ha, who rules your life. Who's the Lord of your life. If you're still the Lord of your life, you're still calling the shots and the priorities. You're still making a way, preparing to stand before God on your own. While things might seem normal in the physical in your life, when it comes to the spiritual, you belong to Satan, Scripture says. And you live in the dominion of darkness. And you are in need of salvation, of redemption, of forgiveness. Only Jesus can do this. Repent. Confess your sins, your desperate need for Jesus, and trust your life to Jesus, your entire life, that He would be the Lord of your life the rest of your days and be saved. Praise God that all who belong to Jesus have overcome the evil one. This is John's point of emphasis in our passage. He wants the church to be certain of even the youngest convert who truly trusts in Jesus shares in the mighty and completed conquest of Christ over Satan. Paul speaks to this in Colossians 2.15, speaking of Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. For all of us who are in Christ, the devil is defeated and rules our lives no more. Because of this mighty truth, James says, with great confidence to his bloodbought brothers and sisters in the church, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4.7 Why though? Why would Satan in all of his power run from little old me in Christ if I stand against him? Why? Because you stand in Christ. That's the key. Because the gospel promise of God in Genesis 3.15 that he would raise up the Redeemer to crush Satan's head. This is fulfilled only in Christ Christ. Because, church, we now belong to Christ. Nothing can take us from His almighty grip. Scripture is clear time and time again. Jesus says it in John 6, 39, that He will lose none of all that He's given, but raise them up on the last day. This is what John wants the beloved to know, to be certain of. You know, I'm writing to you, young man, because you have overcome the evil one. He wants us to know it so well, he says it again in the next verse. You've overcome the evil one. Do you know that the evil one has no power over you anymore? Do you know that? He's conquered, Christian. He is at your feet. Don't give him credit and power over you that he doesn't have. Is Satan powerful? Yes. Is he powerful over us who are in Christ? No. Why? Because we have overcome the evil one in Christ. Know this. Never lose sight of it, church. Paul says it so well, Romans 8, 37-39. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For he has no power over us anymore. For we belong to Jesus now and forever. Is Satan at work in the world? And can he upset our circumstances? Yes. But he cannot get you. He cannot have you. For he has been overcome by Christ. And therefore we who belong to Christ have overcome the evil one. Praise be to God. I want you to live in this certainty. Don't give Satan a bigger seat at the table than he has. He's not even on the same playing field as Jesus. It's not like that stupid picture you've seen with Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. That's, that's nonsense. They're not Jesus rules over all things. Satan is a created being. He's defeated by Jesus. And yet, in God's perfect providence, in His perfect and holy providence, God allows Satan to still reign in this fallen world. But Satan does not reign over the redeemed, for we have overcome him in Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who reigns our lives now. Praise be to God. Look with me at the next part of what we see here in verse 14. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. What does John have in view here? We're strong. Is he thinking of big muscles? Is he thinking of the ability to lift heavy things or have outstanding perseverance? I don't think so. I think it's way bigger than the physical. And I think it's way more important. Journey with me into this. Our physical strength church is is only really the production of our flesh meaning it's limited to the hours by which you train it, right? The, the discipline of your diet, the, the toil of your labor, right? And, and, and yet, we who belong to Jesus, we can be guilty, I think, of over-evaluating our strength on these terms only. But I think to do so is to miss the mark of how Jesus is at work in and through our lives. John wants to say to the believers, even the young or less mature believers, that they are strong. Not not in a think it and be it kind of way. Not that nonsense. Right? But in the fullest reality of who they are in Christ. He wants them to see the reality of what it means that the eternal and all-powerful God is is at work in and through them. No matter if you are physically fit or disabled, young and vibrant or old and slowing down, John's point is that if you are in Christ, you are strong. Why? How? First and foremost, because Christ is strong. See how we do that so often? We love the idea of Christ in us and us in Christ. And then so much of how we look at life, Christ is over here and it's just me. Christ is in you. Christ is strong. Consider the long-standing words of holy scripture, the counsel of God for his people through the generations. God said to Joshua, "I have have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When he says to Joshua, be strong and be courageous, does he say, here's how, much, here's how much weight on the dumbbells I want you to get after today? Right? No. He says, don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. How is he going to be strong, courageous, not frightened, not in dismay? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's how. Joshua nine. God said to his people in Isaiah 41.10, love this verse. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Maybe... Sitting here today, if you're really honest, you are experiencing great physical or mental or emotional struggle lately. You feel that you just can't do what you need to do. You feel many times hopeless to perform. The body and the mind is just not working right. this is you hear God's promise to strengthen and uphold you with all that you need to do his will God is your answer God is your hope God is your strength Paul says to the believers in Ephesus be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might Ephesians 6.10 What this means is if you are walking in Christ, you are as strong as strong can be. Because Jesus is as strong as strong can be. John wants you to know this. He wants you to live in it. He wants you to be certain of it. Not second guess it. Not turn to other things to be your answer. Christian, do you live by faith In the power of the Almighty God. In His resurrection power. May we never lose sight of the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That's the power at work in you and I. That's Ephesians chapter 1, 19 through 20. Praise God for His mighty power. Oh, I love this. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Amen? It is God's power we're desperate for. Not only for a new life, but, but for everlasting life. And for daily life. Now, unlike the prosperity touting heretics of our modern age, the God ordained writers of the Holy Word of God often taught, they often marveled in, and even celebrated not their own personal power or accomplishments but instead their weaknesses and their failure to do anything truly righteous on their own. They climbed into something, the work of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word, that we often really struggle with. Why? Because there's a narrative coming at us hard and long in this modern day that's very opposite. That's very filled with words of pride and you can do it and be all you want to be and that they spoke this way because they understood that it was only in their weakness that they were rightly and fully dependent on Christ and in which God's power in them was most on display. So lean in and try to track with me here that we would not miss this. For example... In Paul's suffering, which was great, he cried out to God and he asked for relief. God reminded him of this game changing truth that is true for all of us who belong to Jesus. Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I want that to really sink in and wash over you for a moment. Jesus' words there. Because we can hear John say, you are strong. Be certain in that. And then think that that means I'm thriving in my strength. But here we see another layer of biblical truth that helps us. What it means that we can be super weak and frail and broken physically, emotionally, and still know the strength of God and His mighty work in and through me. Christian, really slow to consider it with me. Is God's grace sufficient for you? If applied, this means when nothing else is working, everything else seems to be falling apart. And you feel personally very weak. You know the sufficiency and the strength and the power of the Lord at work in your life in such a way that you're not undone, but instead you are mobilized to make much of His name because of how He is at work in and through you and despite your circumstances." And if you're going, yeah, pastor, that sounds awesome. I want that. Where is that? I just go, it's all over here. All over. It's all over. How prosperity teachers get their fuel for their, I have no idea. Christian, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, now Paul, in honesty, is going kind of some reprieve, and this is Jesus' answer. So hear Paul's response. 2 Corinthians twelve nine through 10 Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood that it was not his strength, his ability, his production that mattered or was necessary, but Christ's strength, Christ's production, Christ's glory being revealed through broke-down lives. And if nothing else this morning, I just pray... That in the ways you feel like you're kind of stuck, kind of beating your head against the wall, like how do I find, that that there's a picture here of what this looks like, that you can climb into God's word and humble prayer to say, Lord, reveal it to me. That when we too are saying, look, Lord, I'm just kind of done with like the calamities and the hardships and the persecutions and the insults and how weak I feel, that we would see Paul here in real suffering, not in crazy, buffed out strength, saying, I want to make my bed in that stuff so that in my weaknesses, Christ's power is at work in huge ways. We want to run from it. We want to do everything we can to change our circumstances. And Paul's going, I'm going to snuggle up in it because God's power is seen all the more and that's what I really want. So Christian, I just pray, Holy Spirit, just move in you, move you towards A clarity of seeing this. That Paul finally discovered what it was like when we stop fighting Christ to try to do it ourselves. See, that's that's what the problem is. We want to ditch the idea that God has a better plan and we like our plan. I want this to look this way. When we're weak, we're strong. Because when we put down our deadly, flawed, and failed doing and let Christ go to work, let Him do His work in and through us, it is so much better and we are so much stronger. In other words, every ounce of strength that you try to exert in place of Christ is your effort to do it instead of Him. But do you see the problem with that? What we must see today, so that this truth goes to work, now, it doesn't mean we stop doing, stop working, stop growing, stop trying. If that's what you're hearing here, you're, not, you're missing the point. So let me try to say it different. It means that as we do, fight, grow, try, we never do it in the mindset that I can do it alone. In other words, I never push his hands off the steering wheel and go, I, I got an idea of where I need to go. I'll, just, I'll take hold of this to steer myself. No, no, we we do it all with a desperation to always have our hands over His hands, because I don't want to drive anywhere that He's not taking me, because I belong to Him, and I got nothing to offer that's like Him. And every ounce of me that tries to fight His plan, tries to fight to have some spotlight, tries to say I can do it, is futile the more we embrace our weakness, our inability to just rest in him, to to joyfully go where he wants to take us is the sweet part of what it means to be in the middle of the gospel. Church, we are the people of God's own choosing. And we are, are given the important task of making much of his great name, not because of our resume or because of our power, But because of the resume and power of another, of Christ, we gotta not forget where we came from. What the Lord simply requires of those he will use for the making much of his name is that we trust in him and trust in what he can and will do. We must learn to surrender and let God actually use our insufficiencies, our weaknesses. To make much of his great name in a way that would not happen if we were well accomplished and the best of the best. That's the point. See, we have to be willing to allow God to flip our thinking upside down because it is so countercultural and see that it's not our stellar performance that he uses, but it is our surrender and trust in him that he uses. Why? Because God is already the brightest, already the best, already the richest, and already the most powerful. He doesn't need you and I to do any of that for Him. If you're walking in Christ, you are as strong as strong can be because of Christ. John wants you to know that. He wants you to be certain of it, to cling to it, to rest in it, to walk in it. And one of the best ways by which we are strong in Christ is because we are equipped in Him with the Word of God. This is His next point. And And the Word of God abides in you. You're strong, and the Word of God abides in you. Christian, know this. Know who you are in Christ. take a moment and really consider with me the reality of the storms that rage in our lost and sin-ridden world. Some pretty disgusting stuff, some pretty foul stuff, some pretty selfish stuff. I want to lovingly remind you to not be surprised when enslaved to sin, living in the darkness, people live in sin and act like they're in the darkness. We know their answer is not a new agenda, moral conformity. They need Jesus, they need to be saved from their sin. And we can be guilty of putting a lot of noise out there about where the answers lie and very little of that noise has to do with where the answer really lies. Can we make a little less noise that looks like the world's noise? And make a lot more noise about Jesus, bloody champion, victor, hope of the world, to point people to Christ. That's why we're here. Right? We're not here to secure a a better amount of money to hand off to our children. Uh, We're we're here to live and die for Christ. To make much of His name as long as He ordains it. Consider with me the reality of the storms that rage in this lost and sin-ridden world. Now, I want you to think about where the strength of our footing is amidst that storm... That rages. That footing, has that strength has to come from God. It has to be truth to combat the lies and the deception. To stand on the Word of God in all things. This is Jesus' point in Matthew 7, 24-25. You know it well. Everyone who hears these words of mine... And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the windows blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. What it doesn't say is that that wise man secured a certain kind of home and a certain kind of neighborhood and a certain kind of lifestyle and a certain kind of dress. And then that's what made his life really good. No, he's grounded himself on the rock, on Jesus, in the truths of God. In a world full of deception and lies and temptation, we are desperate to be grounded in the Word of God. Church, it is one thing for you to know it. It's another thing for you to put it to work. The Word of God can't be a good idea. It must be something you study and grow in and do. Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to the Word. And so, too often young men are not keeping their way pure. Not because they don't know the Word, but because they're not putting it to work. I know what I need to do, I just still refuse to do it. This is why I'm stumbling through this sin, through this struggle. Psalm 119.11 I have stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. The the Word of God abiding in us is the specific points of truth and doctrine and clarity that the person representing and belonging to God uses to combat the deception and the temptations of the enemy and those representing the lost world. John says to the believers, because you belong to Jesus, you have His Word. You have access to it in a way you didn't have when you were spiritually dead. This is what he's really saying here. Better than that, you have His Word abiding in you. God's Word is the powerful, authoritative, impactful, far-reaching truths of God. And we must see how it must be at work in our lives. Sanctifying, convicting, directing, purposing, protecting. We're guilty of making light of the Word of God, the truths of God. We're guilty of looking to other things to help us find a way. But, but, but here, God's Word described the potency of this. And as I read it, I want you to think about what else does this. And I'll tell you the answer right now. Nothing. Hebrews 4.2, the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's really good stuff. Beloved, I want you to see the potency of God's Word in your life if you're given to Christ. Discernment to hear and to heed the truths of God. There's nothing better that He could equip you with We no longer need God to grant man power with the miraculous signs that He did at one time before the Word was fully written. We just need God's Word and truths to combat the enemy. Jesus modeled this for us better than anyone in a place of vulnerability that maybe you and I have never or will never ever experience. I believe the temptation that Jesus faced in the desert for Satan is greater than any temptation you and I will ever know. And if you're doubting that, think about the, the bigness of these things. I ain't no one ever going to get offered this. That wasn't very well said, but you get my point. <laughs> Matthew 4, 1-11. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. Are you hungry after not missing a meal, missing a couple days, 40 days, 40 nights? His flesh is legitimately hungry. He is weak in the flesh. He is hungry. His flesh is vulnerable. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. now Satan's trying to play his game, just like false teachers will try to play the game and wield the word in ways that twist him up. Jesus says to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That's a lot of temptation. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him be gone Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve and the devil left him and behold the angels came and were ministering to him Jesus has a love church and a devotion for the glory of God above all else and a commitment and a dependence on the word of God See it at work in this most extreme moment of high temptation when his flesh is very vulnerable, hungry, and weak. See with me that Jesus didn't need anything other than the word of God to combat the enemy. John's point to his hearers is, you have this too. Do you see it? Jesus used nothing that you and I don't have there. Truths of the Word of God to go to work against the temptations the enemy's throwing at you. Don't put him on a pedestal in, in a way that you can't fight those temptations the same way he did. Simply with the truths of God, because you can. That's what God, John, saying. Be certain in this: you have that too. Satan has nothing on you if you are full of faith and trusting in Jesus alone and living according to His Word. I love how the psalmist speaks to this. Psalm 119, 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I love what Paul says to the church in Philippi. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, Philippians 2, 14-16. Holding fast to the word of life. That's abiding language. That's back to what John's getting here. That, uh, that phrase there, holding fast, translates to hold your position, hold your gaze. It's used in 1 Timothy four sixteen, where he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Or in Acts 3.5 it's translated, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. The idea of holding fast with your attention or your person, holding your position with the word of life, not leaving the word of life, staying fixed on the word of life, giving yourself to the word of life. Holding fast to that word daily. In other words, abiding in it putting it deep in the soil of your heart that your roots are deep grounded secure in the truths of god That's what we're doing here this morning it's it's why your spiritual growth is so essential it's so much important than your physical training so much more important than the money you're making how are you deepening your roots in the word being discipled being equipped discipling each other in these things We need this so that when the wind blows and the storms rage, we hold fast. Again, back to Psalm 1. I've been talking about it a lot lately. Psalm 1 1 through 3. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it, on this law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. We need this. We need to be fixed in the truths of God's Word day and night. The the other side of these six verses in Psalm 1 speaks of the person who spends way too much time listening to the people of the world. Sitting with them. Plugged into them. What do they think? What's the best way forward? What's the plan? Sitting with the scoffers and the sinners. You know what it says about those people? It says they're going to be like chaff that's blown all around. Let's turn down the noise of the world and plug into the Word of God day and night to remember His people. God's work in them despite their circumstances. God's promises. Hmm. Jesus spoke the opposite way to unbelievers. As John is speaking in our passage to believers, listen to Jesus' word to unbelievers. John 5, 37-38. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you've never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you. For you do not believe in the one whom He sent. The unbeliever does not hear God's word. He, he doesn't honor God with his life. He doesn't avoid judgment because he doesn't have the word of God abiding in him. He hasn't trusted his life to Jesus. But we who trust in Jesus, we do. John is saying, You know this. You need to know this. How does one navigate this uncertain world? How do you find your way through the minefield of your emotional, mental, circumstantial struggles? How do you grow in maturity and faith and life in Christ, the Word of God, the truths of God? We need to receive it, and it needs to abide in us. And when we do, we abide in Christ. We abide in His great accomplishment on the cross that defeats the accusations of the enemy. Overcome the evil one by the word of God because day by day that word is abiding in us. It's living in us. The gospel, the great story of redemption, the great Christ of redemption, the great God of redemption, the great process of redemption, the great effects of redemption. This gospel, this word of God is not something believed once and then put on a shelf. It's got to, it's got to go to work. We're fools to leave it behind. Church, see with me today. We believe the word of God and it abides in us. Some of you really need this today. You need a new abiding in God's word. You need to hold fast to it in a way you have not. You need to live it out in a way you have not. Christian, you don't need to go looking for the answers have them. This is John's point. He's loving the beloved for it. God's good and life-changing truths abides in you because Christ abides in you. Christian, live with your feet on the rock that is Christ and His authoritative word of truth. Hear it again. I am writing to you, little children, Because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John is saying, you know who you are in Christ. Know that it is Christ in you who has defeated the evil one. Don't kind of know it. Know it. Claim it. Live out of it. Abide in it. Be certain of His victorious work on your behalf. Know that in your weakness He is stronger, desperate for Him in all things, content and satisfied in Him. Church, we need this today. We need it because the enemy is trying so hard to get us to be unsettled in our circumstances. Don't let him have his way. Don't be surprised at the lost world's acting lost. He's trying to get you distracted. He's trying to get you focused on the temporary. So much of you are losing sight of what it means to be grounded and secure in the Lord. enough don't buy into it stop spending more time listening to the noise than you are to the Lord my prayer is that we would learn to be so patient and full of faith as we wake each day that God would ordain for us to serve Him and make much of His name as we look to make disciples and raise a generation of the Holy Church together As we combat the lies with the truth and remain steadfast in the midst of wicked accusations and lies. We must be grounded in Jesus. Certain of who He is and who we are in Him. Ready to serve Him no matter what. Ready to suffer for His namesake. And like those who came before us, count it a joy for getting to do so. We're going to close our time together this morning by singing a great hymn from Psalm 130. I want you to listen to some of that psalm before we go to prayer and corporate worship together. Be still, brothers and sisters. Hear the word of the Lord. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Hope in the Lord. For the Lord, with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption pray with me. Father you are good you are worthy you are holy and perfect in all of your ways you are not absent, you are not lacking you are steadfast when we are not you are faithful when we are not oh God we are desperate for you And we are blessed to have You. We're blessed to be in Christ. We're blessed to be saved by Your grace. And so, Lord, let us live for You and rightly adjust our grip on the temporary and the things that are so upsetting, the things that so bother us, the things that turn us upside down, the things that make us scramble and worry and fear, but but that we would be grounded, certain in You, equipped with Your Word, strong in Your strength, living for Your glory. Thank You, Lord, for today. The sweet gift of Your Word, of this space and time together as Your blood-bought people. Oh, we love You. Hear us now as we honestly pray and sing, respond. In Jesus' name we pray.